From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. Today we're talking about something that, for a while, it was impossible not to hear about. A migrant caravan heading from Central America to the U.S. border right now. Caravan. A caravan. 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 The growing caravan. We will not let you in. We are not going to let you in. Earlier this fall, if you heard about the caravan, what you heard was, they're coming. They are marching through Mexico, growing in size. That group is still about 900 miles away. At least 700 miles away. That's about 500 miles away. First group of migrants from the caravan has reached Tijuana. The caravan reached its destination a few weeks ago. The migrants had finished a massive cross-country journey, and now they faced a new challenge, actually entering the United States. Not long after they arrived, the U.S. Border Patrol tear-gassed a group of migrants near the crossing that links Tijuana and San Diego. There's a photo from that day that shows a woman wearing a T-shirt with Elsa from Frozen and running away from a cloud of gas. She's pulling two little kids in diapers alongside her. All along, it was pretty apparent that a lot of the caravan news coverage was filled with wild paranoia about tubercular ISIS fighters in MS-13 getting money from George Soros. But seeing a photo of toddlers running from tear gas made it painfully obvious how far the reality was from that kind of coverage. We wanted to learn more about what was going on on the ground, about what had brought people to a point where they were willing to face all the dangers they'd faced in the months since leaving home. So, last week, our producer Sarah McVie traveled to Tijuana to talk to some of the women who are now waiting at a camp near the border. She's back now. Hey, Sarah. Hello. Welcome back. First of all, tell me about the camp. So it's this big concrete lot that used to be used for music concerts. And music concerts. Like a, <laughs> my favorite kind. So it's a st- like a stadium? Well, it's it looks sort of like where you might have a flea market. But uh-huh. it's like this big concrete Open expanse. Air, yeah. And then with like stands around the sides. And inside there's about 3,000 people from the caravan. And they're living in these tents or under tarpaulins, which have either been donated by aid organisations or, or given to people as they travelled through Mexico. Just by like... By... Lovely who strangers. They were passing by, yeah. Yeah. And all they have with them is what they were able to carry. So people might have a blanket and a bag of clothes. Aid groups have set up food stations where people line up for plates of rice and beans. The people here have to shower outside in public. There are hoses coming out of the walls. And there are about 15 porta potties for those 3,000 people. And on day one, the porta potties were already overflowing. The conditions are horrible, but you also see how people are trying to preserve a little bit of normal life. You know, people have strung up clotheslines. There are Honduran flags and American flags. Kids are playing soccer. Teenagers are listening to music on boomboxes. I ran into one family celebrating a little girl's second birthday in the camp. How did this group of people find each other? Where did this all start? The caravan actually started as a Facebook group with about 160 people in San Pedro Sula, Honduras. It's really dangerous to travel through Central America and Mexico. 
you often have to pay off people smugglers in order to pass through safely. And so the caravan was an opportunity for people to travel en masse in a group safely. And then as the caravan progressed, it just grew and grew in size, kind of like a Facebook group would, (laughs) um, until there were thousands and thousands of people. And by the time it hit Tijuana, there was about 6,000 people in in the group. People would hear about it on Facebook or WhatsApp. I met one woman named Mirna who told me she heard about the caravan when it went right down the street in front of her house. And she was so excited that she ran inside and, you know, got blankets and clothes and food and started giving away a lot of her things. She was like one of the lovely people along the way who gave them tents and things that they're now using in the camp. Exactly. Her friend who I also talked to said she was just like Santa Claus. And then in a sort of split-second decision, this woman, Mirna, decided to join the caravan too, and she just grabbed a couple of things from her house and set off on foot with them. How long have these people been on the road? Like, how long has their journey to this camp been? So they left San Pedro Sula in Honduras in mid-October, and they travelled for six weeks to reach Tijuana. That's nearly a 3,000-mile journey, so it's like walking from New York to L.A. A lot of the women had to carry their own children. Occasionally along the way, freight trucks would stop and give them rides, but that can be really dangerous too. A woman named Lucia, who travelled with her two-year-old, told me what it was like. The trucks would slow down, but while they were moving, they would have to try and climb up on top of them. So she'd send her cousin and her aunt up first and then pass her two-year-old daughter up onto the truck and then climb up herself. She told me that once her daughter almost fell off and she just thought, like, what am I doing risking my daughter's life? Hearing Lucia makes you think, what are people leaving behind that this seems better? That you might have to risk your child's life in order to get away? You don't walk 3,000 miles on foot with a two-year-old for fun. Everyone I spoke to had different reasons for leaving, different plans for what to do now that they've arrived at the border. But the one story that I kept hearing was the story of families broken apart. Mothers without their children, Mothers who have to make the decision of which child needs them most, of who is light enough to carry, and when they aren't, of how they can best make a life so that one day they can have their children back. The decision of who to take with you is sometimes as simple as who is with you when you flee. I'm going to share the stories of two women whose decision to join the caravan goes directly back to their families. These are stories that I can't stop thinking about, that kind of have me by the throat. And I'm going to start with a woman I met named Claudia. Claudia's 29. She's in Tijuana with her six-year-old daughter Angelina, but she has six other children back in Honduras. When their father died a couple of years ago, she got involved with a man who had a grown-up son. Not long after, that man's son was murdered, and Claudia knew who did it. He wanted her to tell him, but she couldn't. I can't tell him who hurt him or killed him, even if I know, because my life and my children are at stake. How am I going to do that? I'm all they have. He wanted to get the information out of me by force because he heard that I knew who it was. 
He grabbed me by the hair and pushed me against the wall three times. He gave me a hell of a punch in the face with his fist closed and... Then he came and grabbed a big knife. Her oldest son managed to stop Claudia's partner and temporarily defuse the situation. But Claudia was worried he'd turn violent again and kill her. Or he'd somehow force her to say what she knew and then gangs would kill her children. It was an impossible situation, and so she decided to leave. When he wasn't paying attention, she said she grabbed the only money she had on her, which was roughly equivalent to 30 US dollars, and her six-year-old daughter Angelina. And Claudia just took off, as if she was going shopping. Tell me about the moment you decided to leave. I didn't know anything about a caravan or anything like that. I just wanted to get as far away as I could. So this taxi driver gave me a marker and I wrote on my shirt, going north, please give me a ride. Someone picked her and Angelina up and once they were on the road, she called her mum where her other six children were staying. What did you say to your other children? I didn't say anything. I just told them, I'll be right back. Pero no era cierto. But it wasn't true. And then when I called, they asked me, Mom, what happened to you that you never came back? Claudia and Angelina continued to make their way north, sometimes hitching rides, sometimes taking buses and sometimes walking. In Guatemala, they heard about the caravan, which by that point was thousands strong, and they joined. Now Claudia and Angelina are living in a tent in Tijuana. They're waiting to seek asylum in the US. What's going to happen to them now? So it's complicated. The process for claiming asylum is not at all what you would imagine it to be. It used to be that you just go to a port of entry, declare your intention to seek asylum, and you would be processed. Uh So like a port of entry as in you show up at the border? That's right. Okay. Yeah. And now because of the huge bottleneck in cases, that's just not how it works anymore. The Obama administration started this policy called metering, which means that at certain border crossings, a limited number of people will be processed each day. Uh So one, one of the days that I was there... I went down to the border to see what was happening and there was this man there with like a scrappy kind of clipboard um, with a list of numbers on it and he was taking down people's names and giving Mm -hmm. them a number. He was actually a volunteer migrant taking down the names, not a US official. And so how it works is he would just basically write down their name and give them a little scrap of paper with a number on it. And that's passed on. And then each day, a handful of names or 40 names or 100 names or whatever number of claims the US government is dealing with that day will get read out. Yeah. And then those people will get on a bus and be ferried away to have their asylum claims heard by a US official. And so that's where Claudia is right now. She's waiting for her number to be called. When did you get your number? I got it yesterday morning and I got 17.02. Did they tell you how long you should expect to wait to be processed? Probably a month or longer. 
Do people seem like they trust the process by and large? Yeah, I think when you've traveled 3,000 miles and you're told that there is a process and that you will be seen, that's like the last remaining shred of hope. You know, some of these women were there a few weeks ago when US troops tear gassed groups of them while they were protesting at the border. So they have a lot of reason to to lose hope, Mm -hmm. but I think given how far they've traveled, a lot of them really want to hold on to some belief that they might get into the US. And this list represents the only option they have. What does it take to actually qualify for asylum? So here's what the US Citizenship and Immigration Services says. To apply for asylum, you have to prove that you have either been persecuted or you're going to be persecuted on the basis of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. So most of those seem pretty self-explanatory, but social group seems more ambiguous. Can you talk about what that means? It's been handled differently over the years. So under the Obama administration, it could include people who were fleeing domestic violence. But when Jeff Sessions became attorney general, he changed the rules to make it much harder for people like Claudia, who is escaping violence, to apply for asylum and be successful. So Claudia is hoping for asylum, but her chances are much slimmer than they would have been if she'd made the trip even just a couple of years ago. For Claudia, America is a place she imagines but has never seen. After the break, we'll hear from a woman who isn't leaving home. She's trying to get back. Welcome back. On today's episode... We're hearing stories from two women who crossed Mexico with the caravan. Our producer, Sarah McVie, traveled to the camp where they're staying in Tijuana. So I actually met Carla, the next woman that I'm going to tell you about, while I was down the road from the camp buying some tacos. Go on. (laughs) I was struggling because I can't speak Spanish, and so I was like pointing hopelessly at the grill. Major disadvantage. And this woman came up to me and said do you need help? And I was like, yes. (laughs) And so she helped me get the tacos. (laughs) I need them. Um, So she helped me order the tacos and I sat down to eat and she was sitting next to me and she said to me in English, what are you doing here? And I told her I was a reporter and asked her about her story. My name is Carla. I am 38 years old. I'm from Honduras. Tell me why you joined the caravan. Why? Because um, I want to see my kids. They live in the United States, in South Carolina. You know, I am very sad because they over there, I am here, you know, and I want to see them. For most of the women in the caravan, getting to the U.S. is a dream. They think that if they can make it across the border, their lives will be better. But for Carla, it's not an imaginary place. It's her home. Fifteen years ago, Carla left Honduras and walked on her own across the border. In 2003, I came in, um, in the um, La Bestia, you know, uh, the train. La Bestia, the beast, is a nickname for a network of freight trains that run through Mexico. There aren't any passenger rail cars. Migrants ride on top of the cargo. 
it's extremely dangerous. Back then, Carla's journey wasn't the political football it is today. She walked across the border undetected. Then I walk uh, to um, Arizona. Yeah, I walked three days, uh, three nights, November 2003. Who did you go with? Um, by myself. Carla had two small children and she wasn't able to support them in Honduras. My daughter, she was uh, eight years old and my boy, he was uh, 14 months. Um, I leave them with my mom. They need uh, milk, diapers, uh, clothes, shoes, everything, you know. And it's very difficult. Yeah, and that's, that's why I come in to the United States. I work on a restaurant, um, golf club, yeah. When Carla got to America, she found work. She sent money back home so her kids in Honduras had food and diapers. She settled in South Carolina, fell in love and had three more kids. She went to church, she made friends. She made a new life in America. But she missed her kids in Honduras. She missed her mum. She talked to them regularly on the phone, but she wanted to see them. She couldn't easily travel back and forth. She was an undocumented migrant. Carla was caught between two countries, pulled between two sets of kids and trying to do what was best for them both. So in 2012, she went back to Honduras to visit her older kids. But when she tried to re-enter the US, she was taken aside and questioned. They gave me permission uh, for stay, only for stay and for work. They tell me all the time, this is not, not residence, this is not for you stay forever, they tell me that. Last year, after 15 years living, working and raising her children in America, Carla was deported. She was told she had 30 days to go on her own or she'd be put in jail for 30 days and then be sent back anyway. Carla was working as a housekeeper at the time and her boss tried to help her. She tried to help me, but they can't, you know. She's so sad when I tell her I go back to Honduras. And she tell me, Carla, I need to help you. But I talked to somebody and no answer, you know. She tried to talk to, uh, to the government and nobody answered. Carla bought her own airfare and returned to Honduras. Her children stayed in the U.S. with their dad. Jahir. He's in the United States. He's 14 years old. Um, Donovan, he's born in the United States. He's very smart in school. And my last baby, his uh, name is Kiara. And she's, she's, so, she's so sweet. <laughs> you know, it's my daughter, you know. Uh, she's seven. She's seven years old, yeah. She must miss you. She miss me. She tell me... Uh, when I talked to her, she told me, Mommy, I want you to come back. Please, please. I need you. I miss you, you know. All the time she told me, she miss me. What does it feel like to hear her say that? Huh. <sighs> I feel like, um, I don't know, I can't tell you. <laughs> uh, I don't know how I can tell you. But I'm so sad, you know. 
when I left uh, my kids over there. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> Please. You know, um, I miss my kids. And I, I don't want to... They stay uh, over there and I don't see them when they go into school, when they come back from school, you know, and I don't do nothing for them because I don't stay with them, you know. It's very difficult for me. Did you think about taking your kids with you? No, mm -mm, no. It's very dangerous in uh, Honduras. Uh oh, no. It's a lot um, drugs and everything, you know, guns. Mm. That's why I don't, I don't take my kid with me. So many of the women I talked to were fleeing gang violence. A few years back, San Pedro Sula, the city where the caravan was first formed, had the highest homicide rate in the world. An average of three people a day were murdered. One woman told me it wasn't safe for her to be alone in the street. She'd been robbed over and over. Another woman I met was with her 18-year-old son, who gangs had tried to recruit. He didn't want to join them. His cousin had already been murdered by gangs. And when they went to the police, they said they couldn't help and that it was best they leave. So people do. My friend, she told me, Carla, it's uh, one caravan go to, um, to Mexico. Can we go? And I said, yes. Yes, I do. I need to go back to the United States because I have my three kids over there. Tell me about travelling with the caravan. Mm, you know, we walk, we walk, and sometimes we know it. And right now, oh, my God, I don't sleep last night. I don't sleep. That was very, very cold. And, you know, I don't have a mattress. I don't have um, blankets, you know. I have only one. Now I have one more. But um, last night, oh, my God. Carla is now in limbo. She can't go back to Honduras. It's not safe for her there. And she can't get back to America. She's stuck. She's desperate to see her children, but has no idea how to make that happen. Over the couple of days I spent with Carla, she was glued to her phone. She talked for hours with her kids on video chat, only saying goodbye when her battery or her internet was drained. She said talking to Kiara was the hardest. She made me sad. She made me, uh, she made me cry, you know, because... Um, she needs me. She said she needs me a lot. Mommy, what, do you go to Australia? I say, no, Mommy. I want to go see you. Oh, okay. It's too far away, Mommy. <laughs> I say, yes. It's too far away, Mommy. What does your daughter do when you cry? No, she, um, she told me, Mommy, why do you cry? I don't cry, baby. I say, I don't cry. She can hear me. But I say no. I listen to Carla and Kiara talk on the phone for ages. It's clear how much they miss each other and how much it's killing Carla to be away from her. 
Carla wanted me to meet each of her kids, and I video chatted with all of them from the camp. Y le pregunta de Australia, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hello. Kiara had a million questions for me and is just the sweetest little girl. What are you doing? When I got back to the US, I wanted to understand what it's been like for Kiara. She's seven. And when you're seven, your mum is your whole world. I asked Carla if it was okay for me to give Kiara a call. And she said yes. Oh, hi, Sarah. Oh, what you doing today? Kiara can't remember the moment her mum left a year ago. She just remembers what it was like before and what it's like now. Can you um, remember what it was like when your mum lived in South Carolina with you? It was actually fun. I got to take a shower with her. That's nice. Now I can take a shower alone since she's not here. What are your favourite things about her? She's nice. She loves me and I love her back. And she actually plays with me sometimes. Why did she have to go? Um, this this weird president called something, well, I don't know his name, sent her over there. What would you like him to know about your mum? I would like to tell him that she's nice. She's the one who knows a lot of math because she's a grown-up. And that she's a very special woman to me. A very special mom to me. It's a bad life missing her. You should see how my heart feels. Feels bad. Feels sad. And what did she tell you about when she's coming back? She didn't tell me when she's coming back. She just feels she hopes she's going to come back. So when did you guys meet? So we met in the place where she's staying in Mexico. I don't think she has money, does she? I worry that she's going to get hurt, so. She's scared of something, like losing me. She's scared of that? Yeah. And she already lost me. She's trying to get back to you. What would you want her to know? Um, that I'm safe here at the house and I'm playing with my brother. I'm trying to have fun here while I'm waiting until my mom comes back. That's really brave of you. Yeah, I know. I'm always going to love my mom even though she's not here. I hope she comes back here. Carla may not have a claim. Almost 80% of claims from Honduras are denied. But she's made it this far, and it's hard to see her giving up. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Natt. We had more help from Jasmine Romero. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Stella Bugby, Nazanin Rafsanjani, and Alex Bloomberg, who is pleasantly surprised by how funny his coworkers are on Slack. Music, sound design, and mixing are by Haley Shaw. Our theme song is Play It Right by Amelia Meath, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarley, and Alexandra Souser-Monig. 
Field producing and translation are by Andalusia Null Saloff. Additional translation is by Silvina Balderman. Voiceover is by Monica Delgado. Special thanks to Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jenny Wall, Daniela Araya, Sofia Enriquez, Teodorina Bayo, Thais Tavara, and Hamish McDonald. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.